Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. My name is Bella, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Melissa Kibbe. Melissa is an associate professor of psychological and brain sciences at Boston University, where she directs the Developing Minds Lab. Her lab studies infants and children's development of object, numerical, and future-oriented cognition. She is also a passionate advocate for promoting equity and justice in science and academia. In this episode, we discuss Melissa's research on how infants and children perceive, understand, and remember objects and agents. For example, what do babies remember about objects when they're out of view? And does this memory about objects change when they see other people interacting with these objects? Melissa also shares fascinating findings from work in her lab that even babies as young as six months old already have an impressive working memory. In the end, Melissa shares personal advice with people who are in the process of applying to graduate school about how to find a program that is the best fit for them. So, without further ado, here's our conversation. Hi, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So to get started,、um, I'll first have you give us a brief introduction to your research. So, what are some of the topics that you and your lab study? Yeah. So、um, I'm really interested in what I think of as kind of like the fundamental building blocks of human cognition,、um, and part of this interest comes from The fact that when we open our eyes and we look around us, we can seemingly very effortlessly kind of divide up the world into discrete units. We see objects, we see people, and it takes very little effort for us to do that. And my lab really is focused on understanding how do we do that. So how do we do something that's seemingly quite effortless,、um, but it's actually Pretty complex if we think about it, right? We're being our senses are being kind of bombarded with with stimuli, and nevertheless, we can、uh, point out an object, a person, a substance.、Um, and so, my lab, we're really interested in how do we do that,、um, and the way that we try to understand how we do that is by looking at、um, how we do it very early on, like so before we learn. A lot about the world before we have a lot of knowledge about what's in the world. So when we're babies and kids, how do we figure out what things are objects, what things are people, and、um, how do we represent those things, and how do we、uh, think about those things? So that's the basics of what my research is all about. Great.、Um- So, could you give us an example of a project that is representative of your research? Yeah. So, broadly,、um, the research in my lab kind of falls into three different domains. So,、um, we're interested in、um, object cognition. So, how do we represent objects and think about objects that are no longer in view?、Um, how do we think about groups of objects or sets of objects? So, numerical cognition.、Um, And then, how do we think about the future? So,、um, what kinds of things might happen in the future?、Um, and so, I can give you an example of some of the types of research that we might do. 
So for example, if we want to understand how babies keep track of objects that are no longer in view, um, we would do an experiment like this. So we might hide an object from a baby and then reveal that the object has suddenly changed. So for example, it's changed shape, it's changed color, or maybe it's disappeared completely. And of course, we can't ask babies what they know. Um, right. they, we can't ask babies what they remember because, hey, did you, do you remember what color that object is? <laughs> so um, instead of asking them, um, we measure their um, nonverbal responses. So if a baby <laughs> um, sees that an object is hidden behind the screen and suddenly um, when the object is revealed again, it's changed, it looks different. Um, babies will react if they remember what the object looked like. So they might look longer um, at the display, um, showing that they're kind of interested in it. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and so we use that. Um, that's one of the kind of basic methods that we use to be able to understand before we can talk, before we have a lot of knowledge about the world, how do we remember and keep track of things? And how do we think about things that are no longer in view? Um, and so that would be a, um, a kind of a very basic level um, type of experiment that we might run in the lab to answer this question of how do we, um, how do we think about objects that are no longer in view before we can talk about objects that we can't see? Right, that's very interesting. Um, and then just a quick follow-up question uh, to your research on this. So in terms of object, um, there's so many objects in the world. There's probably like a, a countless number of different types of objects. So what exactly are you measuring? Like what type of objects are these babies seeing? Yeah, that's a really great question. There are lots of different kinds of objects in the world. <laughs> um, there are objects that, um, that we use as tools, objects that we mm -hmm. eat as food, right? Our objects yeah. that we share with each other. There are lots and lots of different kinds of objects. And one of the challenges of understanding how babies think about objects is, like you say, kind of deciding on what level of object are we going to be looking at. Um, and so really right. at a very fundamental level, we can kind of take apart all of the, you know, setting aside all of the um, social relevance of objects or the behavioral relevance of objects and just kind of give babies a really, really simple situation of, say, a small wooden shape um, that has a particular color, right? So this is kind of a, a context-free object. It doesn't really have any mm. particular use in the world. It doesn't mm -hmm. really have any uh, social significance to a baby. Um, and we can kind of use that as really a baseline case. So if we, we want to just see, okay, at a, at a very basic, basic level, if we show babies a simple object, what do they remember about that object? Now, there's advantages to that. The advantage is that um, we're very, very tightly controlling what we're showing babies. So we can kind of we can kind of get this sense of at a minimum, at a very, very bare minimum, what do what are babies keeping track of about an object? But of course, like you say, in the real world, objects come from all over the place, right? They are they're socially yeah. relevant. They're um, the things that we interact with. Objects are owned by people. They're shared by people. They're referred to by parents, right? I point to an object mm -hmm. and I say, this is a ball, right? That's a socially mm -hmm. significant factor that could be, that could contribute to the way that babies very early on learn about objects and represent objects. 
Um, and actually, so uh, recently in my lab, we're really we're doing a lot of research um, to kind of examine objects in these social contexts. What do babies think about objects in these social contexts? Do they represent objects differently when objects are socially relevant? Um, so if I just showed you, you know, a, a plain old red triangle and a plain old red circle, and I asked you to remember them, you might be like, oh, okay, there's a red triangle, there's a red circle, whatever. But if mm -hmm. I show you that the red triangle is my favorite object and it's the one I love mm -hmm. the most, that might make you change the way that you represent those objects. It may change the way you remember those objects. You might store the triangle in your mind um, more readily than the circle, for example. Right. <laughs> um, and so that's something that we are investigating with very young babies. Um, mm -hmm. And it's especially interesting because... Baby. One of the really exciting things about studying babies is that they're in many ways very limited, much more limited than adults. They don't have a right. lot of knowledge. They don't have a lot of experience. They have very limited memory capacity. So they, they can't remember as much as adults can. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they haven't been around very long, right? So <laughs> they don't have mm -hmm. a draw on a, a lifetime of experience with objects that adults can. But like adults, they have pretty well-developed perceptual systems so they can see just as well as adults can. Um, and th that that ends up kind of making them a pretty interesting test case because they, they can see as well as adults can. And they're really attuned to the social world. They're always okay. paying attention. Do. Where are people looking? What are people doing? Right? They love to look at babies. Love to look at people. They love to try yeah. to figure out what people are doing. Um, and so that makes babies a really interesting test case because we can see within this very limited little system, right? That without a lot of knowledge, without a lot of experience, and without a lot of memory capacity, what do babies pay attention to? What do they remember? And what do they know? Mm -hmm. And what do they think is important to learn about, right? That, and that, that gives right. us a lot of really interesting hints into kind of the fundamentals of human cognition from very early on. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. This is really fascinating. And I also work with the infant population and, and I study the development of their visual system. So I definitely echo what you're saying. Um, and then I think the answer you just gave me actually answered my next question because I was going to ask you what inspires you to work with this population. And I think your answer uh, speaks for itself and uh, is definitely fascinating to study infants because there's still a lot that we don't know about. Um, and then I also have a couple of follow-up questions to what you just talked about. So the first one is um, you mentioned the example you gave us is uh, a red circle or red triangle. So are these like 2D objects on a screen or are they an actual solid physical object? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So um, it, because I'm really interested in understanding our early intuitions about the world, the real world, mm -hmm. um, I tend to always use real physical objects with babies um, and I babies see. and kids. And there's a few reasons for this. So first of all, we our, you know, our brains evolved in a three-dimensional physical world. Um, and mm -hmm. so we really right. want to understand the origins of human cognition. One of the best ways to do that is to be, is to use real, um, 
let's say, ecologically valid stimuli. Um, the other mm-hmm. thing is, you know, as I mentioned before, right, we can't ask babies what they know. And so we have to, right. we have to try to measure um, what babies know in kind of indirect ways. And one of the ways that we do that is try to understand a baby's expectations by violating those expectations and seeing if they're <laughs> um, Babies yep. don't have a lot of expectations about how two-dimensional objects should behave, which totally makes sense, right? We didn't evolve in a two-dimensional. Right. We have some experience with screens, but not all that much experience with screens. Yeah. And so if we really want to understand babies' expectations about physical objects, the best way to do that is to use real physical objects and violate those expectations. Um, and mm-hmm. so um, that, so in my lab, that's, that's what we do. In fact, we, we um, have a large puppet stage where babies can watch live. <laughs> I, I say puppet, but there's not really puppets involved, but they're actually watching physical objects move around um, on a puppet stage, objects being hidden from view um, and then mm-hmm. we, we have to do some kind of little magic tricks to um, change things without babies knowing and, and look at what babies understand about the stimuli. Mm-hmm. So I, I imagine that there's someone hiding behind the stage and uh, look at where the baby is looking. That's right. Yeah. So um, typically a study, if, if we, when we do studies with babies, um, we would have two experimenters. So one would be controlling mm-hmm. the puppet stage, hiding objects yeah. behind screens, uh, secretly switching objects for other objects um, through trapdoors, um, things like this. And then we have another observer who's actually watching the baby, measuring where the baby looks and how long they look and signaling the okay. experimenter like, hey, the baby's still interested, keep showing them the stimuli or the baby has lost mm-hmm. interest. Um, don't show them the stimuli anymore. Mm, I see. I see. That's very um, important part of the experiment. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and another question I had was when you were saying when uh, we're showing babies objects that has like a social special meaning to them, they tend to remember it more than the other objects. So since they haven't developed the, the ability to speak, how would we know that they would understand the social aspect of the object. Yeah, there's a there's a few different ways that we can we can look at this. So um, I can actually I can tell you about one study um, that mm-hmm. where we so in this study um, what we did was we showed babies and I'll use the triangle and the circle again because these are these yeah. are us uh, <laughs> in our studies. Um, we showed babies a triangle in a circle. Um, that were placed on a puppet stage. And over the course of several familiarization trials, we showed them that a a person was sitting um, behind the puppet stage and watching the objects being placed on the stage. And then the person repeatedly reached and grasped one of the objects. We'll just say the triangle. They repeatedly Mm -hmm. reached and grasped the triangle. And over the course of familiarization trials, babies saw that 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 agent reached and grasped for the same object over and over and over. And we know from Mm, previous work that was done way back when in the 1990s, that when babies see a person reach for and grab one object over a different object, they, it prompts them to, um, 
to think that, okay, that person has a goal to reach for and grab that object. That person has a preference for that object. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, so we showed babies this um, you know, a bunch of different times. And then with, again, with the agent present, we actually um, showed babies that the objects, rather than just being visible on the puppet stage, now the, the circle and the triangle moved behind occluders. And so what that meant is that they were hidden from the baby but visible to mm-hmm. the And then mm-hmm. um, we we looked at baby's eye movements. So right before the agent would have reached for and grasped the object, we looked at where did babies look? Did they look toward the, the hiding place of the triangle or did they look toward mm-hmm. the hiding place of the circle? And what we found is right before the agent was about to take her action, babies looked toward the hiding place of the triangle. That tells us that they remembered, oh, she's going to reach for that triangle. I know she's going to reach for the triangle. I remember <laughs> that um, the triangle is hiding over here. And so I'm going to um, anticipate where the agent will look for her object. And so that's that's a measure that allows us to kind of say, okay, babies seem to be processing what's going on. And not only are they processing what's going on and responding to what's going on, but they're actively anticipating what will happen in the future um, based on Mm -hmm. what they've done in the past. Yeah, that's incredible. It's really surprising how much these babies can do, even at such a young age. They really can. It's, uh, it honestly, it never ceases to amaze me, the capacities of babies to really pay attention to and process like kind of the the most interesting and relevant aspects of the world. Yeah. So what would you say is the most surprising thing that you discovered about infants? Yeah. um, Well, surprising to me or surprising to the field (laughs) because I'm Um, I'm never surprised by babies. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, to both, whatever you want to share. Yeah. So, um, so I think that one of my favorite studies that we've ever done, um, I think was a little bit surprising. Um, and in that study, um, we were really interested in this, um, kind of challenging some conventional wisdom about what it means to represent an object. So there's sort of a, a classical view that says, if I want to represent an object, and what I mean by represent is there's an object in the world and I have to mm-hmm. store some some aspect or something about that that uh, object in my mind, right? So that I can think mm-hmm. about the object when it's no longer in view. So that's what I mean by represent. So a little a something in your right. mind allows you to think about an object when you're not looking directly at the object. And so this classical view that goes back to David Hume, right? Philosophers, right? Way, you know, hundreds of years. The classical view is that what it means to represent an object is to take a, an image of that object essentially your your perception of the object and just copy it into memory. So I have a percept of what the object looks like and I just copy that into my mind. And then when the object is no longer in view, I just have a little copy in my mind. Right? So that, that, mm-hmm. that's the conventional view. Um, and <clears throat> my intuition was that if we actually look at what babies represent, that might not be what's going on. Um, and the, the, you know, the, again, going back to babies, babies are kind of cool because their representational capacities are limited, right? They can't remember a lot. Their perceptual right. system is quite well developed, but they don't know a lot yet. 
Um, and so you might think that if it's the case that what it means to represent an object is to copy an image and put it into your mind, then a baby's going to do that. A baby is a perfect case to do that, right? Because they're a little perceptual. Mm -hmm. They don't know a lot. <laughs> so what we did was um, to, to kind of test and see if this is true, we capitalized on a, a, a kind of interesting limitation that specifically six-month-old babies have. And so I'm just going to explain the limitation really quick. So six-month-old baby, two objects, like two just perceptually distinct objects. So like a circle and a triangle, our old circle and triangle friends. You show them a circle and a triangle and you hide them one at a time in different locations. Six-month-olds are really good at remembering what the um, what the last object that you hid looked like. So like you hide one object over here, mm. one object in a different location. The one you just hid, babies are good at remembering that. They remember its color. They remember its shape. It's kind of the one they just saw hidden. So it's kind of fresh in their minds. But they're right. really yep. bad at remembering the other object. They don't remember what that object looks like at six months. They don't remember its color. They don't remember its shape. But what we found, and this was a really kind of an old study, about a 10-year-old study, what we found is that if we take the object away completely, that if we completely vanish the object, now the object has disappeared. It hasn't changed color, hasn't changed shape, it's just disappeared. Six-month-olds mm -hmm. are surprised by that outcome, and they look longer. What that suggests is that babies remember that the object should exist, even though they don't remember what the object looks like. So if they're really just kind of copying a little percept into memory, they should go, they should be surprised when it changes color, changes shape, but no, right. they should be surprised when it changes, when, I'm sorry, when it blinks out of existence. So they're remembering something, a little inkling of the object, but not what the object looks like. And so we said, okay, let's push on that a little bit. Instead of hiding objects that look different, let's hide objects that are from different categorical domains. So like mm. Human-like object, so like a face, and a non-human object, a ball. And what we want to see, mm -hmm. do babies remember not just what the object looks like, but what the object is? So not just, okay, it's a blue and red thing, but it's a ball or it's a face. So we did the same thing. Okay. We objects one at a time, each in different locations. And again, we tested babies' memory on that one that they, that object that they typically fail to remember its color, its shape. They don't typically remember what it looks like. And what we found is when the objects that we had were from different categories, so like a face and a ball, babies were surprised when the object changed from, let's say, a face to a ball or from a ball to a face. So they were like, oh, wait a minute. That's that's not the object that you hid there originally. And what was really mm -hmm. interesting, they don't seem to remember what <laughs> what's, what the specific features of the face or the ball are. So if I, if I showed them that the... Face had changed to a ball, surprising. If I show them that the face changed to a completely different face, not surprising. If I show them that the ball changed to a completely different ball, not surprising. So what this suggests is that what babies are really remembering about this object is not what the object looks like, but what the object is. And these are six-month-old babies. This is what was really striking to me about. These are little teeny right. They don't have the language to talk about balls and dolls yet. They're this, but in these under these limited situations, what these six-month-old babies are remembering is not what the object looks like, 
it's what the object is, what its category is. Mm-hmm. So that I think that was, is, is really one of fascinating. exciting findings from the lab. Wow. So when you were hiding uh, the object, um, did it matter the order you hide which object first or uh, if you were to hide both of them at the same time? Did that yeah. matter at all? It definitely matters what you hide first. So like I said, um, you know, if, we, if we're hiding things one at a time, for babies, they see the, the first thing you hide. They're kind of paying attention to that. They see the first thing you hide. And then their attention is drawn to the second thing you're hiding. So they're like, ooh, what's that? I'm going to watch that happen. Mm-hmm. Right. A six-month-old baby with really limited attention, limited memory. Once your attention yes. is drawn to that, that's the thing you're going to remember. Except that you do remember a little something about that first thing. You might not remember all the details, but you remember its essence. And this is, you know, something that I think as adults, we is very intuitive, right? How many times have we lost track of something and, you know, remembered that, oh, yeah, I I think I saw, you know, um, someone left an umbrella over here, but I can't remember whether it was a red umbrella or a blue umbrella, right? Right. Yeah. Object category. You're not remembering what the object looks like necessarily. Um, And that's something that, you know, adults do all the time. But of course, no. not as surprising with adults because we know about umbrellas. We know about, you know, all kinds of things, but babies don't know as much as we do. Um, and so I think that's, that's one of the most um, interesting things about studying pre-linguistic babies or babies before they can talk. They're in many ways right. similar to adults in the way they remember mm-hmm. things. Yeah, that is very surprising. And then I wonder how they were able to differentiate a ball is different than a face. Like what exactly about the ball that they remembered in their mind that they're able to recognize that's different from a face. So that's definitely yeah. interesting. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely features of faces that babies key in on in the first hours of life. Babies mm-hmm. like to look at faces. They prefer to look at upright faces versus inverted faces. So like a, mm-hmm. a, a with eyes at the top is, is newborns like that better than a thing with eyes at the bottom. So like already in just a few first few hours of life, babies are keying in on faces. Um, and there was even a study that showed that um, <laughs> it was an ultrasound study that where they actually showed um, uh, like they shined light into parents' tummies. Um, that was in the shape oh, of wow. a face or an inverted face. And they used ultrasound to measure head turn. Um, and they found uh-huh. that baby like fe- fetuses in the third trimester preferred to look at the upright orientation as opposed to the inverted orientation. So this is like babies even before they're born wow. all, over, all over faces. Wow. Yeah. And in ultrasound, that's, I can imagine how difficult it is to measure it. Yeah. So, um, and then. I also think that it's surprising that six months olds are able to recognize balls because uh, in the uh, project that I'm doing at Sanford right now, we are finding that by four months old, infants are able to recognize faces. And then by six months old, they're recognizing body parts, uh, limbs, hands, or foot. But we didn't actually see a lot of this to other categories of singly, like cars, corridors, or uh, other objects like string instruments or other types of stimuli. So 
the fact that they're able to see balls and remember that's different from a phase is really surprising to me. Yeah, I think probably in, I don't have data to back this up, but I think probably what at six months, what they're representing is agent or object. So at a very, very high level, not on the level of like what kind of object this is, but just like, is it an object or is it a person? Um, and right. I, I think probably um, the level at which infants are representing these objects so at a very, very kind of domain level. Yeah. So do you think the body limbs fall into agents category, maybe? <laughs> I think that's a great question. I think that's a, a, a great empirical question. I mean, I think babies are into hands, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm not sure about feet or legs, but <laughs> I know that you know, <laughs> babies are keying in on the most communicative parts of people, their faces and their hands. Um, but I think, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's, it's an interesting empirical question. Yeah, definitely. Um, and then I'm also wondering, would it make a difference when the object is uh, real versus a 2D, like an animated uh, object? Even for agents, would it be different when they see 2D versus 3D? So I, I think that's just a great question. And uh, I'll try to answer it very shortly. I feel like I can talk <laughs> about this. Um, so in my lab, we study objects and, you know, we're touching mm-hmm. on like a little slice of my research, but really fundamentally, we, we're interested in objects, you know, quantities and the way that babies and kids think about objects. Um, and objects are, are interesting and they're, they're cool for a number of reasons, um, but they're not the most interesting thing to babies. I mean, they're interesting in that people like to interact with objects, but babies and adults are really interested in things that are animated. So things that are animated and have a um, an inner source of energy that can allow them to move. Mm-hmm. I think right. that in two dimensions, we ascribe animacy to all kinds of things. In fact, and, and babies do too. In fact, it's so hard not to ascribe adamacy to things. As soon as you see something that's kind of moving on its own, you want to say, uh, oh, that's a little um, a little animal or um, that, that thing is sad or that thing wants to get yeah, right. Um, right. And so we, we, uh, we really have to work hard to not to ascribe adamacy to things. And that's even true, I think, in two dimensions. Um, and, and, you know, anybody who's seen, um, you know, uh, videos of, of just like little dots moving around the screen, all you have to do is kind of make those dots look like they're moving a little bit contingently together for you to come up with all kinds of stories about what those dots might be doing, right? That mm-hmm. dot is trying to run away from that other dot. Um, and that's yeah. true for babies too. Babies also ascribe agency to the two-dimensional things that are just kind of moving around. But in the object domain, it's it's harder to get intuitions about objects, about three-dimensional, real three-dimensional physical objects from things that are 2D. Um, and so um, I think that, you know, we, we, we've done studies with animated stimuli that we, we want babies to think of as objects. And a lot of people have as well. Um, and babies can remember those kinds of stimuli. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's fine. 
whether they're thinking about them as like 3D physical objects. And, and what I mean by that is like objects that obey the laws of physics that can't occupy the same space as another object or, you know, okay. can't, um, can't deform and squeeze through a tiny hole, right? The, these kinds of things, right? Whether babies are thinking about those things as those kinds of objects, I don't think so. Um, I think that babies and adults are are more liberal in their descriptions of of agency or animacy than they are in their descriptions mm-hmm. of to um, stimuli. Yeah, that's very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and then I know that you study um, infants' working memory. And it seems like infants can remember a lot. So how good is their memory? What can you uh, tell us about their working memory? Yeah, um, you know, my my main interest in working memory is because I want to see how we think about things when they're no longer in view. Um, and mm-hmm. the best way to do that is to um, ask a baby, a kid, an adult to store something very briefly in working memory and then test um, what's what's in that representation? Um, and I, I can it, over the years, I've done a lot of different studies with babies and kids and working memory. Um, so I can just tell you a little bit of what we've learned. So okay, one great. some of the things that we've learned about working memory in in infants and kids. Um, infants are, as you might expect, more limited than adults in what they can remember. So they can just remember fewer things overall. And as infants and kids develop, they start to be able to remember more things. And a lot of that is due to um, the development of attention, the ability to spread attention um, across different objects, the ability to divide attention between, um, you know, maintaining a representation in the mind and paying attention to something new in the world. Like that's actually pretty tough. And that's something that develops quite a bit across the first three or four years of life. And so when we look at how how working memory for visual information is developing, what we really see is a lot of um, a lot of that is driven by the development of attention and the ability to divide attention mm-hmm. across different stimuli and between the mind and the world. <clears throat> so that's one thing that's kind of different between babies and adults. There's a lot more lim- babies and kids are much more limited than adults are, but we mm-hmm. also see a lot of continuity between infants and adults. So infants and kids have the ability to um, take advantage of, I, I guess I could say, take advantage of um, organizing information to help them remember more. So mm-hmm. if I were to um, ask you to remember a phone number, I would give you the digits in groups of three and four. I'd say like, you know, five, 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 one, two, one, two. And that pause helps you keep track of the five, five, five and the one, two, one, two. Dividing things into um, smaller units allows you to chunk those things and remember more. And babies and kids can do this as well. So if we give babies and kids cues to um, be able to group objects together, they can take advantage of that to actually remember more things. Um, and they can they can use a variety of cues, including um, language. So if I show you, you know, a set of objects and I say, okay, these things, if I show you, let's say three things, I say, these things, this is my Blick. And I put that aside. And then I show you two things and I say, this is my Dax. Um, if we if we show toddlers these things, they can use those labels to actually keep track of how many things are um, you know, hidden in a location. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I say, oh, my Dax is over here, um, 
kids will say kids will know that oh there's two things there um so that's mm. something that <clears throat> is really similar to the way adults actually use memory um and then the last thing is um adults in adults know we're limited right so if you know when you're not going to be able to remember a bunch of stuff you're like all right you're telling right. me to remember it um and you know, infants and kids are really quite limited um but we also have evidence that kids know their limits so if a kid knows that um they're not they don't remember something very well they can report on that and they can say yeah I, I don't remember this very well so not only are kids you know limited like adults but they can tell you that they're limited. They know their limits. Mm-hmm. Um, that self-awareness, so be, being able to say, uh, yeah, this is beyond what I can remember, is um, allows kids to use their memory more flexibly and adaptively. They can say, okay, I don't remember this right now. Um, and uh, maybe you should, maybe I shouldn't rely on my memory right now. Um, and so that's, mm-hmm. that's a, a really adaptive thing for a, a limited memory system. Um, so again, there's differences with kids. They're more limited, but there's a lot of continuity mm-hmm. in the way they use working memory, which I think is is really interesting um, and uh, kind of an exciting thing that's that's come out of my research over the last ten years or so. Wow! Yeah, that is definitely interesting. Thanks for sharing. And then um, I just have this really wild question, just completely out of curiosity, and <laughs> and this may not even fall into your expertise but i'm just curious how come um when we grow up we don't remember anything from our infancies or early childhood what happened like what changed how come we just can't remember oh gosh um so that's a really <laughs> that's a hotly debated question um mm-hmm. and i don't have any um data to bear on this question um but i can say that you know, there have been some theories that have been put forth to say, okay, maybe um, before the age of three or four, we don't have episodic memory, for example. So episodic memory is the ability to, you know, um, bind like what you, what you remember with where you remembered it. Um, and I, mm-hmm. that's true. We, we have evidence that, that younger kids have um, younger than kids, younger than three or four do have evidence of episodic memory. So it can't be that they don't, that we don't have episodic memory. We are encoding memories. Um, mm-hmm. Some people have um, attributed it to like a, a reorganization of the hippocampus that happens. So there's some ner- uh, neural reorganization of the hippocampus that happens between the ages of three and four. Um, other people mm-hmm. have attributed it to the development of language abilities. So the way that we think about our own memories changes. Um, I don't really know. None of those theories can really explain the kind of individual differences we observe. And again, this is not my area of, of expertise necessarily, but you know, some mm-hmm. people report remembering things from when they were three, four. Some people don't remember anything from before they were like six years old, seven years old, right? Right. So yeah. Variability. Um, and, and why that is, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I think it's fascinating. Um, I, especially, I think it especially is interesting because as psychologists who study kids, sometimes we, we need to be putting ourselves in their shoes. What was it like to be a kid? What was it like to, you know, think about exactly. And we're limited in our ability to do that because we don't necessarily remember what it's like to be a really little kid. 
Um, so, um, but, but to answer your question, we don't know. It's actually a hotly, a hotly debated topic. <laughs> yeah. I'm also very curious about this, especially when I work with infants and I see them every day. Um, but then I can't remember anything about my own uh, infancy. What was it like and feelings or emotions, anything. So, yeah. Yeah, I hope that one day we'll be able to figure this out and have an answer. Me too. <laughs> um, and yeah. <laughs> and then another topic you mentioned earlier is that um, you also study future competition. So can you mm -hmm. tell us more about this area of work? <clears throat> yeah. So as I mentioned, um, one of my main interests is um, in studying how how we can think about things that aren't in view. Um, and historically I've looked at, you know, how do we think about objects that are no longer in view or quantities that are no longer in view or people that are no longer in view. Um, but more recently we've been really been interested in something that's really not in view and, and potentially not knowable at the moment, which is something that hasn't happened yet. Um, so thinking mm -hmm. about something that hasn't happened yet is, is really tricky. It involves coordination of a lot of different cognitive systems. So um, it involves thinking about um, all the possibilities that could potentially occur. Um, it involves okay. thinking about, um, you know, what you might need to execute those possibilities, um, how, uh, what you might need to do to plan for some of those possibilities to occur. Right. So it involves a lot of, a lot of thinking, um, a lot of reasoning about yeah. things that are, are currently unknowable, which I, I think is really fascinating. Um, and again, this is something that adults do very frequently. Um, you know, I, uh, if I go out, I don't know if it's, um, it can, if it's going to rain, it could rain, it could not. So I'm going to take my umbrella just in case, right? This is something that we do all the time. Um, and so when does this start to develop? When does this come online? If we think about just the case of taking your umbrella, it involves knowledge, right? You have to know that if it's yep. raining, you need to use an umbrella. Um, you need to know what an mm -hmm. umbrella is for. Um, you need to so draw on that memory of in the past. I've used an umbrella mm -hmm. in the rain. I draw on that memory. Um, and I have to know that I might, I may not, but I might use that umbrella in the future. <laughs> therefore, I'm going to need to pack it. So it requires drawing on um, past experiences, thinking about multiple mutually exclusive possibilities. It's either raining or it's not, right? Um, right, and yeah. Need um, and planning ahead accordingly. Um, and so um, in my lab more recently, we've really been trying to tease apart all of those little um, pieces of that process and especially in really young kids. Um, so looking at like two and three-year-olds. So these are kind of the youngest kids that we can really test this out in. And so these are kids that... Mm -hmm. You know, they have some episodic memory skills, they have some planning skills, but all of that stuff is really in development. And so we can look mm -hmm. at the emergence, we can start to look at the emergence of this ability in human development. When does it start to occur? Um, and what are, you know, how do how do we tease apart all of those different components that I just talked about? So drawing on memory, planning, mm -hmm. thinking multiple mutually exclusive possibilities, all of those things. Um, and do they have different developmental trajectories? And if so, um, what are those trajectories? So 
Um, that's that's kind of the um, in the last couple of years, um, we've really been digging into those questions, and um, which I find very exciting. Um, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially looking at young kids, right, two and three year olds, they're challenging. They're, <laughs> they're challenging to study. Um, they have a little bit of language, but but not too much. And so the challenge, yeah. <laughs> you know, simple um, interactive. T- asks that um, don't make a lot of demands on other cognitive stuff that we're not interested in, right? We don't want to make a lot of demands on language. We don't want to make a lot of demands on other domains of reasoning. We just really want to try to get at those little pieces of reasoning um, that that kids can use to think about the future. Um, And so, yeah, so that's what we've been working on um, more recently. It's it's been really fun Mm -hmm. and interesting. So what have you found so far? Are yeah. two years old able to do some planning? Yes, they are. <laughs> yes. Um, wow. So um, we recently found that infants as or children as young as two um, are able to um, think about something that hasn't happened yet. To um, think about um, what they might need to do in the future and plan accordingly. So take take the correct actions to make something happen in the future. Um, and not only that, but they can do that um, not just with um, things that they have experience with. So, like, a, you know, we show it two year olds a little box that they can they can take a little action on this box to make something happen in the future. Um, and mm. we ask kids to um, you know take the correct actions to make something happen. Um, if we take them out of that, if we take two year olds out of that context and we show them a different box, that has kind of similar buttons. Two-year-olds can actually generalize what they learned to apply it to a totally new scenario um, and make a plan to make something happen in the future. So two-year-olds actually, even even at those at that young age, are pretty flexible in their their reasoning and thinking about the future. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and um, we found basically a lot of the work that we're finding, or a lot of the research that we're doing, and the the results that we're finding is that young kids have quite a lot of confidence at, in planning for the future and thinking about things that haven't happened yet. Um, and part of the trick is just making um, the task kind of simple enough that we can really get mm-hmm. at those competencies. And so that's that's a lot of the work that we've been doing more recently. And and I know just from uh, reading other literature that even infants can recognize whether an agent is taking an efficient path or using information in an efficient way. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering whether you see the two-year-olds uh, planning their actions in the future efficiently. I, Do I they take efficiency into consideration? Yeah, we haven't looked at that yet specifically. So, you know, if... Um, if a, a particular action requires a lot of effort, um, will two-year-olds, for example, avoid that action um, compared to an action that takes less effort? Um, I don't know. We, have, we haven't looked at that specifically yet, but my guess is that they probably would take effort into account. Um, and mm-hmm. again, that, ties it, that kind of ties back into um, a lot of the work that we've done with working memory is showing that kids are kind of aware of their own limits. They're aware of how hard things are <laughs> um, and they, <laughs> they modify the behavior accordingly, um, which is, yeah, totally makes sense. It's a really practical thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I've definitely underestimated um, how much infants 
can achieve. <laughs> it's just hitting me every day that oh wow they can do this oh wow they can do that too. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's only it's only been in the last you know thirty or forty years that um, that we've even ascribed infants representation at all. I mean the, the conventional mm-hmm. wisdom was that babies don't even have object permanence. They they have they're yeah. existing this blooming buzzing confusion of stimuli that they cannot make sense of until they're quite old. Um, and of course now we know that that's not true. Um, babies mm-hmm. are quite um, adept at carving up the world into um, objects, agents, um, and all kinds of things that are beh- behaviorally relevant to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that we're on the topic of future planning, uh, what are some upcoming projects that you're interested in looking into? Yeah, so in addition to just continuing on with a lot of the work on um, objects in a social world um, and mm-hmm. um, future-oriented cognition, um, we're also doing a lot of work looking at um, what I call, what I think of as functional thinking in um, in young kids. So the idea is, you know, once we have a representation of an object, what can we do with that object? So how can we manipulate that the representation in our mind? Um, right. And um, the a lot of the thinking about this line of research comes from thinking about how we manipulate symbolic quantities. Um, so if I ask you to add two numbers together, there's a way that you do that. You know, you take take the two numbers and add them together with some operation and it produces mm-hmm. some third number. Thinking about objects might follow similar, um, you know, similar algorithm, right? If I have an object that I hide in one location and then I add some more objects in that location, how do we keep track of all of the objects that are hidden in that location? Um, and right. so, you know, there's been a lot of work that's been done on this, um, on babies. How do they keep track of multiple objects in a location? Um, and more recently, we've really been digging into just how do they do that? Not just that they can do it, that they can keep track of multiple objects, but how do they do it? Um, and so over the next five years or so, um, we were really going to be doing a lot more work looking at, you know, just what what are babies doing when they're adding up objects or subtracting objects? Um, does it look like the way that we manipulate symbolic numbers or does it look totally different? Um, and the, to answer these questions, I think is really important because when we think about babies' early capacity to keep track of multiple objects, there are a lot of um, theories of learning that suggest that this is the root of how we learn symbolic number. And this is the root of how we learn symbolic math, right? Babies have babies mm-hmm. and kids have an early capacity to keep track of quantities and then they can leverage those early capacities to learn that, you know, the number, the symbol three maps onto this many things. Um, but so, so really understanding, getting, getting to a really clear understanding of just how, um, how these computations work in the mind can give us some insights into how these computations might actually help kids learn math. Um, and so uh, right. that's something that I think I'm I'm pretty excited about that we've been working on um, for the past few years and we'll be working on over the next, let's say, five years or so. Yeah, I'm really excited and I can't wait to see your new research on this. Yeah. 
So lastly, um, I know it's application season for a lot of people applying to college and uh, PhD programs. So I wanted to ask if you have any tips that you would like to share with our audience or students applying uh, in terms of writing their statements or even uh, when they're interviewing for the programs. Yeah. Anything you want to share at all? Sure. Um, No, I I think for when you're applying, I guess my general advice is PhD programs are five years of your life and it's a lot of work. And so what you really should be thinking about is where are you going to be happy for five years? (laughs) So where are you going to be where are you going to have a, a good supportive environment that's a good fit for your research interests? Though I think sometimes when people are applying to grad school, they feel like I should apply really broadly and just, you know, throw a bunch of applications at the wall and see what sticks. And that that might mm-hmm. be an okay strategy in some cases. But um, I think a really good strategy, um, and that that's good for you and for your application, is to really focus on research fit and, and um, what are your interests and what faculty have similar interests. You know, it can be broadly construed. It could also be that you don't know what your interests are yet. And that's totally fine too. Whatever is kind of exciting to you is something that you should pursue. Um, and then when you're, when, you know, in an interview situation, my other bit of advice is remember that they're interviewing you, but you're interviewing them too. Um, and so mm-hmm. if, you know, where you want to end up in a place that feels supportive, that feels like they value your ideas and that they're going to treat you like a valued colleague in addition to being a student. Um, so look for, you know, a collaborative, not a competitive environment, um, a place that, um, you feel comfortable in. Um, and I think that, you know, that's probably, <laughs> That's probably my my best advice for success in a PhD program. If you feel comfortable in a PhD program, if you feel supported, you're going to succeed. That's going to be more important than, you know, the name on the school. Yeah, absolutely. That's very well said. Um, and I think, unfortunately, for a lot of people, they w- wouldn't be able to figure out whether the lab that they are in is actually good fit for them until they started their PhD. Um, so what are some of the ways that we can do before we make the final decision to yeah. further assess whether this is a good fit for me or not? Talk to the members of the lab. You absolutely can mm-hmm. reach out to current graduate students. You can reach out to former graduate students and you can ask explicitly what is the culture of the lab? And you can ask this of the of the faculty member you're applying to work with too. What's the culture mm-hmm. of the lab? Um, you can ask questions like, you know, how has the lab dealt with situations where a student was having a hard time? Um, you can mm-hmm. observe how a lab treats its undergraduate research assistants. Okay, so if mm-hmm. undergraduate research assistants are being treated as like workhorses that are just there to collect data. <laughs> That's that's kind of a red flag for me. I mean, I think that that suggests that maybe there's, um, you know, a hierarchical situation in the lab that might not right. be conducive to a positive mentoring environment, for example. So those are the things that um, that you can look for um, and and trust your gut. If you get a funny feeling, you know, follow up on that feeling by talking to people, talking to lab people in the lab, talking to other grad students in the program. 
um, to really get a sense of what the culture is like. Um, and you can get a good sense of culture just from talking to people um, pretty quickly. So you can trust your gut on mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Great. Thank you so much for sharing. That was great advice. And I definitely encourage everyone to do what you just suggested. And we also underestimate the power of our intuition sometimes. Absolutely. I mean, babies do it. Babies <laughs> live yep. by that. So we should also do that. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So great. Thank you so much again for such a fun conversation. It was really great to have you here. And I hope there are many more fun conversations to come. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you so much for tuning in. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or our podcast in general. You can click on the link to survey attached in the show description or reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsychpod. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or other platforms so that more people can find us. Thank you so much.